Pittsburgh today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Over the last few weeks, several media and news outlets have been looking at how the coronavirus is hitting some groups disproportionately and how the pandemic is affecting and in some ways even widening the gap between the haves and the have-nots. This idea of the wealthy among us holding up in their homes waiting for deliveries of groceries or takeout from an expensive restaurant while others are out risking their lives, still doing the work that they were always doing. The question is, now that we are seeing these class divisions play out so clearly in the midst of a public health crisis, what can we do to try to change this paradigm that seems so deeply embedded in modern American life? Here to talk with us about this growing class struggle are two people who've been spending a lot of time thinking about and looking at these issues. Justin Guest is a public policy professor at George Mason University and the author of The New Minority. Justin, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks, it's a pleasure. Yes. Also with us is Jennifer Valentino DeVries. She is a reporter on the investigative team at the New York Times specializing in technology coverage. Jennifer, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. And we should say that uh, Jennifer is joining us by Skype uh, for today's program. So, Jennifer, I'm going to start with you. Uh, In a piece that you recently wrote, cities across America are examined and smartphone location data findings show that many lower income workers continue to move around a lot during the pandemic while those making more money are able to stay home and limit their exposure. Talk about why that's significant when we talk about issues of public health and equity. Sure. Well, um, what the data showed is that, um, you know, everybody has reduced their their movements um, in uh, all the top 25 metro areas. But um, the wealthiest people were able to, um, you know, stay at home and hardly move at all, um, while the the poorest were still moving, especially on weekdays in ways that indicated, you know, that they were, they were still going to work. And, um, you know, I talked to a number of, um, of workers for, for this piece and, um, a lot of the people who were still working, you know, they felt a bit conflicted, right? So they were, happy in some ways to have um, employment um, when a lot of people are, are getting laid off. But um, depending on, you know, how much protective equipment they were receiving, um, what benefits their employers were providing, um, you know, they they were um, in some cases, you know, pretty, pretty scared to be going to work. And a lot of them did not have health insurance mm-hmm. um, and, you know, were worried about what would happen to them if they um, did get the coronavirus um, as a result of, of having to continue working. Yeah. You know, it it, um, it reminds me of, in a way, the, the sort of dark uh, reflection of society that we saw in movies last year, like Parasite, uh, where you have this real difference in the way people – People live and experience the world. I think the the, the one significant difference here is, of course, we're talking about a global pandemic, uh, and and the consequences are so much higher, uh, so much higher stakes. Uh, talk about um, Jennifer, this this uh, the, the things that we can learn from this data, and in terms of 
how to better look out for, you know, these essential workers. It's it's ironic almost that we call them essential and talk about how important they are, but that they are being put at tremendously more risk than everybody else. Right. I mean, I think that when people um, first consider who essential workers are, you know, before this pandemic, um, I think, you know, the the common conception was that, you know, you had doctors and nurses and um, police officers and um, firefighters, that sort of thing, kind of first responders. But I think this has shown that um, that people who are essential to the functioning of society include um, a lot of folks who, you know, previously, I think a lot of um, the population would have said they were not essential or they weren't treated as though they were essential. You know, they were not um, given high wages um, or really even middle class wages. You know, for some of these folks, I talked with a, um, a home um, health aide who you know, takes care of um, uh, elderly and disabled people um, in their homes. And, you know, she makes about 13 to $14 an hour um, in the Chicago area. And, you know, that is, I think, something that we, we need to consider in terms of um, what we are uh, paying um, to to people who are really doing important work for society. Mm. Um, you know, I think that the, the data was able to show that these people were really still moving around and not in, and in ways that indicated, you know, it was for work reasons. It wasn't like you saw a spike on weekends, right. like people were just ignoring, you know, social distancing guidelines and going out and doing whatever. Um, you know, so I think that, um, at the time that we looked at this, you know, we were getting a lot of anecdotal evidence that, um, that lower income workers were, were still on the job. Um, but the data showed that this was really, um, you know, having an effect on their ability to stay home. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Justin Guest in a recent piece in the Atlantic, you said uh, that self-isolation is an economic luxury. Uh, I think that's a really artful way to talk about these these differences, this gap that is really on display right now during the pandemic. Yeah, it, it, it very much uh, it very much is an economic luxury. Uh, you know, self-isolation is great public guidance, but when your job depends on manual labor, on service labor, on actually showing up. To work, um, then self-isolation is simply not an option. Um, you know, if you, uh, uh, much like air pollution or traffic or contaminated water or bad weather, pandemics are an equalizer, but class intermediates and it compounds the risk for those who are already at risk. And for all the focus that our society has rightfully had, I think, on highly trained physicians and nurses and scientists right now, there is an absolute army of working class Americans who are providing services related to food provision, food production, logistics, and healthcare administration. And those folks simply cannot work from home. Physicians are some of the last professionals right now who are required to show up for work every day and work with their hands. Um, and even they are now slowly shifting to telemedicine. So 
this country right now has reverted to a time when working-class Americans are our backbone. They're the heart and soul of America right now, and they're keeping us afloat. Mm. Uh, Justin, one of your focuses is on the white work, the politics of white working class Americans in the context of these state protests we're seeing here in Michigan and around the country calling for a reopening of the economy. How do you see national politics playing into these situations and tensions at the state level? There's another irony there, I think. Uh, it, It seems that a lot of the people who are out and angriest about the stay-home orders and the restrictions are some of the people who are just are, are more vulnerable than others because of the work that they have. Yeah, but I think that this is a story that's not just about class or even just about politics. I do think that politics plays an enormous role because there's a lot of following the, the leader here. Uh, a lot of, um, of uh, right-wing and Republican uh, uh, rhetoric has been demanding the reopening of the country, which is appealing to our natural impulses as Americans and as human beings to want to be free to, to go out and live the lives we want to live. And we're tired. It's been six weeks of, 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 of imposed stay-at-home orders, and uh, we've all, we're all about a bit fed up. And so the politics there is appealing to that. But I think that the real uh, uh, fault line that is dividing those folks uh, from others is that you know, America is a diverse country. You know, some people live in, in a very highly uh, densely populated place like Detroit or like New York or Miami or Boston, uh, where, you know, you are highly exposed and vulnerable to this virus. Um, others are living in rural and more remote parts of America or suburban parts of America where you're not exposed to as many people, where you're not as vulnerable to the virus due to simple population concentration. They don't have to take the train or the bus to work. Um, and so their, their coronavirus experience is simply very different. And being told to stay at home when, you know, the nearest grocery store is, you know, 15-mile drive away is a very different um, uh, a set of politics from those of people who are in those urban areas. Hmm. Uh, my guests are Justin Guest. He is a public policy professor at George Mason University and author of The New Minority. Uh, also with us is Jennifer Valentino DeVries, a reporter on the investigative team at The New York Times who specializes in technology coverage. We're talking about the different ways that people at different economic levels are experiencing the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, a recent story in the New York Times took a look at location data and discovered that uh, people are moving around at really different paces depending on what economic level uh, they they uh, exist at. Uh, people who are wealthy enough to be able to stay home are staying home, but people who have jobs that really require them to still be going out to work, for instance, uh, are moving around a lot more. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us if you're seeing this class divide play out in your life? Are you out delivering food and other essentials to someone else who's staying home? Are you what we're calling right now an essential worker, somebody who still has to get up and go out uh, into the world each day uh, to earn money? Uh, Do you have protection in place like paid time off if you get sick and can't continue to come in? How are you making ends meet uh, while all of this goes on. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today 
uh, and uh, we'll work, try to work you into a conversation. Jennifer, I know you have to run, um, but um, I, I want to ask you one last one last question before you do. Um, uh, you, you write that data offers real-time evidence of a divide lay bare um, by the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, uh, talk about the ways in which um, we might change those things. And, and I mean, I know it's not your job as a reporter necessarily to make that kind of conjecture, but I, I think not, not many people have looked at the data as closely as you have and seen this play out uh, in, in such explicit terms. Well, I think, you know, it's, it's tough at this time to change the actual movements of essential workers. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we do in fact need people who are, um, able to, um, work on our, our food supply and, and make sure that things are running properly. But, um, I think some things that we could do include, um, making sure that there are, um, protections in place for these people, um, and that there are guidelines from, um, you know, employment, uh, um, government employment agencies, OSHA, um, for example, you know, that, um, ensure that workers are getting protected. Um, we could do more to, to make sure that they have, um, coverage if for healthcare, if they are, are getting sick, um, and paid time off if they're sick. Um, and I think that would go a long way to, um, making people feel more comfortable at this time. You know, when I spoke with workers who were, um, uh, working class, but unionized, um, and, you know, in jobs where their union had fought for extra pay for them and mm -hmm. to make sure that there were good social distancing measures at their factory and they were all provided with masks and extra hand washing time and, um, time off if they were sick and, you know, a, a number of other benefits. Those people were actually, I think, much less fearful and, um, happy, to be an essential worker and in fact proud of that fact um and you know that was just anecdotal but i think that 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 told me a lot about some things that could be done to help people okay jennifer valentino devries reporter on the investigative team at the new york times it was really great to have you here for this conversation thanks for coming by thank you I want to continue the conversation with Justin Guest, who is a public policy professor at George Mason University. And let's get to listeners here. I've got a lot of folks who want to talk about this. Adam in Detroit, you're up next. What's on your mind? Adam, you need to turn down your radio, bud. Okay. Yeah. Hello? Yep, go ahead. Very pleased to be talking to you, sir. Uh, yes, yeah, it's, nice it's, it's an honor. Um, well, I'm a garbage man, you know, and, and, I, and I love all of the first responders and everybody on the front line. I just want to send a shout out to all the garbage men out there that still getting the garbage. We can't let the garbage pile up. Right, right. So, so Adam, uh, you're a garbage man here in Detroit? Yes, sir. So, so well, actually, I run, I, I run a transfer station. Okay. So it's it's okay. mostly commercial, but it's, we get the hospital loads. We get the garbage. Right. I'm getting all of the stuff that the stores are selling you guys and you know, we still out here. That's all I'm saying. So, shout so, out to the garbage guys. So, give me a give me a sense of how work goes for you right now. Are there are there 
are there social distancing protocols in place? Is there protection? Well, yeah, for me, because I'm a, I'm, I'm a heavy equipment operator. Yeah. But, you know, the guys still out there, they, they stay as far apart as they can. We we got a lot of PPE. We got the, you know, the hand sanitizers and all of that. We got to come out here. We got to work because we can't let the garbage pile up alongside it. Yeah. This pandemic. Yeah, no, I mean, that would, that would not be, that would not be good. Do you feel like uh, your employer is, is doing what they should be doing to make sure everybody's safe? Yeah, for the most part, they are. Yeah. Yep, they are. Right. You know, it's it's a lot of common sense. You know. Yeah. yeah. You know. Yeah. All right, Adam. I I appreciate your calling, but I especially uh, appreciate uh, what you're doing and and you know uh, keeping some things going during uh, during the pandemic and all the reaction to it. Uh, so thanks for thanks for being here with us. Uh, let's go to Paulette in Detroit. Paulette, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. Steven. I've enjoyed your show many days and enjoy your guests and their perspective on life in America and life during this crisis. Mm -hmm. Even my concern is that those who are asking for an end to the restrictions are not aware of how severe the crisis is in areas such as Detroit. Mm -hmm. They, in general, I would say that they are not people who are living in congested areas like the city of Detroit, high population areas, and they are wanting their freedom, but failing to realize that they're in fact risking their own lives and not having a sensitivity to the great risks and dangers that people living in cities and more confined areas are already facing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paula, uh, that's a, that is a really great point to make. Uh, Justin guessed this, this debate about going back to life as normal at some point. It does have implications that are influenced by these, by these differences. And as you point out, it's not just... Uh, it's not just about uh, wealth or poverty. It is also about density uh, and and places where the virus is already really spreading quickly and and killing a lot of people versus places that it's that it's not. But but I wonder what your reaction is to to Paulette's point. Yeah, I think Paulette makes a fantastic point. It's an important point, and it's from listening. It's through listening to our fellow Americans and their perspectives about their lives that we can actually come to some form of of resolution about how we govern this crisis. But unfortunately, right now, the nature of American politics, it doesn't involve a lot of listening. Uh, We're often cocooned inside of of a sort of echo chamber of people who are like us, who live like us, who live in areas like ours, um, and and who have life experiences like our own. And the problem is it it deafens us to the experiences of those uh, outside of it. You know, America is a remarkably diverse country. And usually when we talk about diversity, we're talking about ethnic or racial or religious diversity. But it's also a remarkably geographically diverse country. You know, people live in very different topographic uh, places and, and, and very different urban, suburban and rural environments that absolutely change. They change the way their lives are framed. Um, and then socioeconomically, we're remarkably diverse. We're subject to enormous gaping inequality. And many of the people who are on those protest lines telling, uh, you know, governors that they want to reopen their economies and lift stay-at-home ordinances, these are folks who are not as, as vulnerable as Ms. Paulette, um, perhaps, and, but they're also people who 
um, may be as vulnerable as uh, Mr. Adam, the, the gentleman who called earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, if they don't work, they don't get paid. And this is a class differential, too, because those who actually have accumulated enough assets to allow themselves to go eight weeks or 12 weeks without pay uh, are in a very different condition from Americans who cannot afford to do that. And the nature of the the way that uh, Congress and state governments have thus far been designing uh, 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 the the country's recovery is that it's not actually guaranteeing um, basic income to absolutely everybody who was previously employed in a way that other countries have, like, uh, like Denmark, for instance, which basically nationalized all payroll. Right. Rather, they're working through employers, and that simply changes the situation of Americans from different parts of the country. Yeah, uh, I've got about 30 seconds left, but I wonder, Justin, if you can just briefly address, and that may be an unfair request, <laughs> the possibility for a kind of fundamental change after this, things like universal basic income, things like uh, universal health care, do they find more receptive discussion and, and uh, debate after, after this is over? At some point, I think, Stephen, Americans will realize that we are only as strong as our weakest American. Hmm. And so taking care of each other is taking care of ourselves. Protecting the most vulnerable and safeguarding their livelihoods is protecting our own. It's safeguarding our own livelihoods. Yeah. We live in a very, very interdependent world, and that is the that independent interdependence is what has made this virus just so dangerous. And it is only by leveraging that interdependence that we are going to defeat it. Okay, Justin Guest, public policy professor at George Mason University, and author of the new Minority. Great to have you with us. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Stephen. That's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.